90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I mean, we talked for like an hour before we started recording, so that's how I am. <laughs> it's been a We rough. really need to book <laughs> two phone calls every week for weeks like this yeah yeah i think so like i don't i don't think i've sat down in my chair well that's not true i had zoom meetings virtually all day today and interviewing candidates over zoom is really hard yeah yeah it's really hard um so we've compressed what would be a two-day campus visit into a one-day zoom-a-thon and there was all kinds of problems with Zoom this morning. The candidate couldn't get into the meetings, and it was, yeah. So it's, it's been whatever, I guess. How about you? <laughs> yeah, we've had some interesting. We had a interesting chemical reaction in coolant in one of our mills, and <laughs> uh, we've had some more issues with the podcast hosting. <laughs> So the short of it is you're going to notice a big change probably shortly after this releases. Excellent. And that we're moving to a different podcast hosting service. Mm-hmm. Great. I tried pretty hard to work with our current host, which is Libsyn, and try to get them to help us figure out, okay, you know, these things were posting to our website fine for the last, I don't know, five years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And suddenly they stopped. And it's not working anymore. And the final response that we got from their technical support was, we're not sure why it's not working, but it should be. If you figure it out, let us know. <laughs> uh, that's so funny that could you do my job for me extends into the customer service realm, even... There. Yeah, and normally I don't, you know, bash a company's customer service in any kind of public forum, uh, but this was pretty abysmal. Yeah, egregious even. So, yes, we're moving. The website will look slightly different, but magically it will actually be up to date. Fabulous. Uh, you shouldn't have to change anything in your feed. It will all get forwarded and... Apple and Stitcher and Spotify, and everybody should pick up that forward. Great. Uh, but if you don't hear from us, you should worry. Yes. <laughs> uh, but there should be no change on your end. And you may have noticed uh, that one of the episodes, I think it was the episode right before Bill's chewing on his buddy, <laughs> uh, re-released again. Uh <laughs> is awesome. part of the troubleshooting process to try to get the website to work. So anyway, we're, we should be fully transitioned over within about a week. Almost good to go. Great. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, th that is, th that's a parable for my week, actually. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> it, it has been that story, but rinse and repeat with different situations for the last several days. I hear you. I don't know. I said several times today, Mercury's in retrograde, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> like yeah. there's just nothing else to say for to explain the things that were happening. <laughs> so, fluorinated water. 
Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, we do get some interesting... Um, so speaking of the show stuff, the show email always backs up because I don't see it in my primary display. Uh, and I don't and, email, so... <laughs> and and you don't email. So I've been working through some of that backlog. And uh, also, that's where our fun paper comes from today, actually, is a December uh, listener email. But... <laughs> We get a lot of spam because yeah. our email address is plastered out there hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. We get a lot of spam, some of it good, some of it bad. And we also get on a lot of pseudoscience mailing lists somehow. I don't know if somebody out there that listens is doing this or not. Um, I mean, it's not an exact science. Ones. It's not an exact science, so does yeah. that make it pseudoscience? Uh, but I'm sorry if if you would like to come on our podcast to to tell us exactly why climate change is not a real thing. Oh. We're probably not going to do that. I don't know. I think maybe we should dedicate a month to it. We can get a flat earther. We can get a climate denier. It could be fun. I don't, I don't know if my heart can handle <laughs> okay not this week i don't know if your heart can handle this week either john because i want to talk about rocks again not like that you want to talk about i mean it's pretty much what we talked about last week yes so i thought that if people you know we just randomly picked i said let's talk about sedimentary structures but maybe people don't know how you get sedimentary structures so i figured we'd go back and we'd talk about how flow regimes work and how they create sedimentary structures in the first place. So it kind of contextualizes a few of the things that we talked about last week. And this is kind of one of the beginning staples of any sort of sedimentary undergrad geology class. I thought you got sedimentary structures by going to the field in North Texas. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And we're out. (laughs) So you you said that you want to talk about flow regimes. <laughs> I said this partly in jest because I knew it would it would pain you deeply, uh, but also because as a geophysicist, you know, to me there are two flow regimes and they're upper and lower. Oh my god! And we're out. Uh- <laughs> one makes pointy things. One makes less pointy things. They all look the same in seismic. <laughs> like you could never resolve a. <clears throat> exactly. Structure yeah. and the size same size yeah, you can't see them. So true. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so despite that insulting instruct <laughs> introduction <laughs> to flow regimes, <laughs> I mean, but really it is just upper and lower. That's it. But there's a progression through it. <laughs> and you know, I, I do jest because there is a lot of math behind this. It's, again, it's fluid dynamics. All these things can occur in the atmosphere. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I got to use that during a candidate talk today, and I loved it so much. <laughs> because, you know, we'd always say that we spent $50,000 to say that air acts as a fluid, to learn that air acts as a fluid. And then I laughed at myself because I thought, oh, it costs much more than $50,000 today to get a degree. So... <laughs> Right. <laughs> that dated me right there. <laughs> well, and 
I don't know. I mean, I, I find it satisfying. We've talked about this before, and one of our listeners, uh, you know, as I mentioned, had wanted to know about it. Um, that really the geology and meteorology are very deeply interconnected. Fundamentally, they're all fluid dynamics mm-hmm. at yeah. some level. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and I, as much as I make fun of sedimentary stuff, uh, it is important, <laughs> yeah. so you should pay attention. <laughs> oh, I liked your little disclaimer. Um, the other reason that I've thought a lot about this is because, man, we had some rock... I, I just called them rocks. We had some clouds the other day that were just right on the cusp of being Kelvin Hemholtz little oscillations, but they didn't quite make it. <laughs> right, yeah. They're... <laughs> They're super awesome, uh, oh, these Kelvin Helm so, waves. They're so cool. But that's what I think of when I, you know, look at these flow regime diagrams, too, because that's really exciting. Um, <laughs> and this is exactly that. So we had randomly picked last week, you know, what are our favorite sedimentary structures? But And we talked a lot about the flume, but we didn't really explain what that was. <laughs> so maybe we should well, explain that, too. <laughs> there is a video. LinkedIn last week's show. Oh, that's true. Yes, because you videoed it. I forgot that you had nerdily videoed your undergrad assignment. <laughs> I did. And, but, but a flume is a long, narrow channel that, in our case, we put sand in. And then we would flow water over it at different speeds and set it at different grades. And it had clear sides so you could watch the the bed forms move. Right. And as you cranked up that velocity and the inclination we're just going to talk about velocity right now uh different bed forms form and so that's what we're talking about when we talk about you know the concept of flow regime because different velocities of water are going to create these different sedimentary structures and i talk a lot about this because this is where like my upbringing comes from in geology is talking about the processes behind what's making the sedimentary rocks that you see. And that's what I find exciting. And so that's why flow regime is such a cool thing. And if you watch John's experiment video, you know, from the beginning to the end, it's really neat to see how these change. Um, And so I just thought we'd walk through them, not as our favorites, but as what really happens as you increase velocity in a stream. All right. Mm-hmm. And I so, say I say stream. I want to I want to get this out real quick. I say stream, uh-huh. and that confuses people because I think some people think of streams as super tiny little things, but I say that to mean any river type body in general. Right, Mississippi could do this. Correct. We call them streams. I don't know why, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> uh, you, you know, spherical chicken. <laughs> correct (laughs) all right so in the lower flow regime so slower moving water low energy water if you want to talk to somebody that studies you know more recent processes Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. um it's where you get baby ripples right um so that's sort of the second thing that you get because that means you're getting baby ripples. That means you're moving sediment. There's actually one even lower than that. And I know you can't resolve this with your low and high ge- geophysics. Right. <laughs> Is the one where you don't have grain movements at all. And that's just flat. Do you remember? Okay. 
yeah. low, lower flow regime planar bedding. Do you remember? Yeah. That? I guess L- we never really look at it because it's boring. It's but. super boring. <laughs> <laughs> so it's super boring, but it becomes really important, actually, when we get to the highest uh, flow regime part. So you're right. Once we start to move sediments, you get baby ripples. And you would see these... You know, like along any sort of lake or body of water where you've got these. Or even like in the road, if you get little piles of mud, you form these little ripples all over the place. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean by baby ripples? Uh, okay, so we're going to put numbers on this. Uh, you're welcome. Less than 30 <laughs> centimeters. Okay, there you go. Or, you know, a foot for those of us that use... <laughs> Those units still. <laughs> uh, and, and that number is the wavelength. And right, they're so generally far. much smaller than that. I don't know that I've ever seen foot scale. You know, they've either been several centimeters or meters. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I have seen a few that are quite large wavelength like that. But I see them more in ancient rocks. So not as a sedimentary structure, but as an actual, you know, not as a bed form, but as an actual sedimentary structure. So the bed form is ripples. The sed structure, as it becomes a rock, as it gets frozen, is this, um, becomes cross beds. Right. And so bed form just means what is it now in a stream if you were to... Mm -hmm. Be able to, well, okay, you can do this. Goggles <laughs> to be able to put something on and go look at it, and it's a dynamic thing. That's a bed form, right? Exactly. That's the process that results in the sedimentary structure that you see in the rock, right? So little um, planar cross beds are the baby ripples, and as we start to crank stuff up a little bit more, we get some weirder ripples. Right, and that's where you go from straight, sort of a 2D version into three-dimensional structure. Yeah, and planar crossbeds, so if you're looking at a rock, planar crossbeds are little straight lines, little diagonal lines, okay? Great, planar crossbeds. Now, when you get these weird, weird structures as you increase, um, it's this creates what we'd call trough cross beds. All right. So these cross beds and these ripples aren't these very nice linear features that march along as your water is flowing. They start to take on more sinuous crests. So sort of what you would imagine if you're imagining a big dune field of sand, really. Um, you get these sinuous crests, and when you turn that into a rock, those sinuous crests form these trough cross beds. And so now instead of these straight, diagonally um, oriented lines, you get sort of these almost, I don't, man, I don't know how to. They, they look like hard. fish scales, but it's in cross section. Thank you. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. They're they're almost asymptotic to the bedding plane. I think if you stacked a bunch of hot dogs and squished them. Okay, thanks, geophysicist. 
Yeah, I mean that's the, that, that's the terrible description, but it's all of these kind of sausagey looking things if you were to look down on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but then when you cut across the end, they're kind of oblique. Right. And cross I mean, this, sections of that. This makes sense, right? So if you've got yeah. a lower a lower velocity, stuff can stay nice and even and repetitive but then as you increase it a little bit you get a little more chaos in the system right well and you start changing things like the reynolds number (sighs) calm down of the system so (laughs) you start going from laminar into more turbulent flow regimes Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah exactly there are actually four types of three-dimensional ripples oh all right let's 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 hear it. (laughs) So there's sinuous, Mm -hmm. which we've already talked about. Now, all these result in basically the same set of structure. Basically. Oh. I I just, oh. I I mean, sort of, yes. (laughs) I mean, it's sort of, you can identify it as it's not straight crested ripples. Right. Yeah. Telling the difference between some of these, I think even... Sedimentologists are hard pressed. <laughs> yes, yeah, and and we usually just break this down into like planar crossbeds and trough crossbeds. Right. Yeah. So sinuous, mm-hmm. catenary, which is um, if you ask you know your kid to draw like waves on an ocean and then you turn it ninety degrees, that's what these look like. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're scalloped. Yeah. Uh, then lingoid i love that one (laughs) which are sort of cup shaped not just in a row one after the other Mm -hmm. and the cup the the cusp is open into the flow direction okay yeah and there's lunate which is the same shape but pointing the other way the cusp is open to the downstream direction if you've done any Eolian research, and we've talked about dunes on here before. I mean, this is the same sort of stuff. You know, you got Barkan dunes and paraboloid dunes. It's the same thing because air is a fluid. Right. And sand is sand. Yep. <laughs> right. And so those four different types, I mean, it's it stacks up. As you increase velocity, you sort of increase the chaos in the system. Right. Yeah. And they all you're, result. You're changing that Froude number. You're changing Froude that Reynolds number. number. Yep. <laughs> I love it. Um, and so John is exactly right. All those resulted crossbeds. But it's, this is, I think, a very hard and one of the first sort of really intense times in an undergraduate geologist degree where you truly have to start to understand things in both two dimensions and three dimensions because it's hard and it looks so different so you can look at these ripples and then say what does that look like as a as a sedimentary structure you know and if you're just looking at the top or just a cross section on the side it's different than what like three dimensionally that shape truly is. Cause just like, as you were describing, you know, it's a cup shape, like in the direction of flow or, or basically the other way, 
Right, but if you were to see a cross-section of that, all you see are these little crossbeds that are sort of asymptotic. That's it. So you miss the cup. So you really have to use these things, the block diagrams that we use so frequently, to understand these in 3D to get the true picture of what's happening. Right, and I wish there was a way to like, take your flume experiment and you know, bake it yes. to get a rock that you could turn out <laughs> and then cut it in various ways. <laughs> this sounds like something you should you should make. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. A little easy bake oven for your flume. <laughs> I was just about to try to come up with a pun on easy bake oven. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with it by next week. You, you screw those 100-watt uh, light bulbs that you now can't find anywhere exactly. into the flume. And, <laughs> and there you go. Man, I see yep. how you could do this. You just have, like, little pieces that just come out right out of the flume and then go straight into your oven to make delicious, delicious trough crossbeds. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, because, I mean, even watching it in the flume, that's really... It's almost 2D, right? Because you can look at it from the top and you can look at it from the side... But to see these things from a different angle, because it's not like all rocks are going to be cut at that exact angle, right? And it's... It, it's like yeah. why it's important to take, you know, Play-Doh and make deformation features and right. then cut it. Mm-hmm. So yep. you can see this is what a plunging anticline looks like in the real world. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly right. Yeah. Everything isn't, you know, perfectly symmetrical and all that. Um I remember last year when we were out on our field methods field trip before everything got shut down, back when we got to go outside, um, (laughs) we were on the ranch that you've been out to where you usually, um, where we usually go map and there's a big fault there, but it's not exposed very well. So you really have to infer the fault location by all those fun things that you learn in geology, you know, repeat section on all that. But there was a part of the ranch that actually had been cleared with a bulldozer and they exposed the fault surface. I was so excited. (laughs) um, My TA who had been out there with me the last two years and he's like, oh, they've been doing some work over there. And I was like, that's weird. There's like a little spring right there. And I walk over there and I'm like, hey, this is real close. And I'm like, that spring, (gasps) that spring is there because this is the fault surface. And then you got down on it and you could see, you know, slicking lines and all this. And I went crazy and my whole class is like, yeah, okay. So (laughs) how close is it to where we thought it was? It's pretty close. It's pretty close. This is at the, it's sort of further on the west side though. So... It's hard to tell over on the east side where there's a lot of structure. It's hard to tell exactly where it goes from there. Um, it was probably down the slope, I don't know, 10, 15 meters more than I would have put it. But, yeah. That's solid pencil width. Exactly. I, it was so exciting. And my point is, <laughs> when we got there, you could actually see that the fault plane curved. And they're all like... Well, yeah, but, you know, faults are straight. And it's like, well, well, no, like, a fault is a plane, you know. You can – it's a plane. And I said – and I took a piece of paper and I bent it. And I was like, is this plane straight? And they're like, no. And you saw them. Like, they were like, what? 
And it was like their mind was blown because they were so used to just drawing this straight fault that they didn't put together this line is actually a plane. Like the trace is just the trace. That's the line. The fault's actually a plane. And in fact, it can be curvilinear. <laughs> yes. Yes, it can. Yeah. And it was so cool to see. And I feel that way about these said structures. Like you don't get it until you see it in 3D in the field. And you're like, oh, <laughs> that's what that ripple looks like. It's very hard to, it's very hard to visualize. Well, and it can get even more complicated. You can have these compound structures. You can have ripples on dunes. Shush, shush, shush. <laughs> and then on the leeward side, they're regressive ripples because of the eddy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, all that can happen. So you go from ripples, as you increase your velocity, you go up to dunes, which are not baby ripples. They're big ripples. And just like John said, you can have baby ripples climbing up the face of dunes, too. And that stuff's hard to preserve, but you can definitely see it happen in a flume. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A bigger flume than what we used, but mm -hmm. yes, you can see it. Yes. And yes, hopefully correct. we're trying to arrange a exciting interview on a much, much bigger flume. Much so. bigger flume. Um, we'll let that tease sit out there. I'm so excited to talk about that. Um, okay, so we got ripples, we got these sand waves and dunes, and instead of our 30 centimeters, you know, these are the meter, 10 meter range, right? And then... Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, I guess. I'm trying to think of the biggest ones. I've ever, yeah. Well, I've never seen anything bigger than that, I guess. Yeah, okay. So they could be way bigger than that if you talk about, um, if you want to talk about the Scavlands of Washington, which is a floodplain from the glacial lakes. So Lake Bonneville was a huge glacial lake that was dammed up by glaciers and it's what is now currently the great salt lake but it was huge and when those glaciers melted bonneville you know i mean it had to go somewhere and it flooded and these huge rolling hills they just look like rolling hills but actually they're they're dunes from the outwash of this huge glacial lake so those are many tens of meters in wavelength okay so, you know, they're there. It's not anything I've seen in person, but <laughs> but these can get pretty big. Um, but as you go up in flow regime, you go back to planar bedding, which is why I wanted to mention it before. <laughs> right, and, that, and so at this point, you're scouring away everything. <laughs> right, yeah. So when you see flat parallel beds either there was no real movement of grains or you're in the upper flow regime now and there was a lot of movement of grains so what's a sedimentologist to do how can you tell the difference between lower flow regime planar bedding and upper flow regime planar bedding and this is where you have to start thinking about what's actually happening like what's the process so if nothing's moving and you get these flat boring parallel beds okay nothing's moving but if you crank this up and you've got 
really high velocity stuff and you have, you've scoured everything off, just like John said, and you've got planar bedding, you still have a lot of grain movement. And grains are going to organize themselves and move according to basically their densities. And so you get laminations of different minerals in these upper flow regime planar bedding surfaces. Right. So you get, oh, and also, you know, there's grain size sorting and all kinds of stuff that can happen too. Right. But, yes. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, so you get these very distinct looking, like, well, it seems unlikely that we deposited just this mineral for a while and then just this <laughs> mineral. <laughs> yes. Because yeah, of the flow regime. Right. And that's exactly it. This is what I was always, I, I don't know, dorkily, like this is what like the hook was for me for flow regime because I thought that was so cool. Like it goes back to the beginning. Like it starts with planar bedding. It can get super fast. And even though you're in the upper flow regime, you're still in planar bedding. Like that was really neat to me. And then John's favorite comes in the the highest of the flow regimes. <laughs> right. So the, the high energy, we've already gone past planar bedding. Our fruit number is much, much greater than one. Mm-hmm. Anti-dunes. So cool. And so we talked a lot about this last week. So, you know, just see last week's show, I guess. <laughs> dunes that move in the other direction. And the really cool thing about anti-dunes, too, is generally the way it works out, the depth scale that's required to get the fruit number to be much greater than one, the shape of the anti-dunes is reflected on the surface of the water. Right. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, ripples are a little bit, but these are like mirror images. Right. And so there's no offset. They're mirror images because it's just going so fast. And it just looks like they look like standing waves. So this is what you would call a standing wave. And so underneath a standing wave is an antidune. And these are really hard to preserve as a sedimentary layer. And also really hard to tell that it's an anti-dune and not just a dune. You'd right. have to have and some other flow direction indicator to be able to tell that. And the term that I found, though I've never heard this before, was that their sedimentary structure is a backset cross laminae. Yeah, I think that might be an older thing that maybe we don't say. Yeah. Okay. Fair. <laughs> I'm just uh, gonna. Th- I'm just gonna. That's just my guess because I also haven't heard that. Um, but you don't hear it because antidunes are, you know, upper upper flow regime, and so to go from that, usually you have to like step back down the flow regime, right? As your water goes away, like you usually don't just stop ridiculously fast flowing water. And so in the sequence of the water slowing down, you don't preserve the anadunes. Right. So they don't get, they have to get buried really fast or something to, to be preserved. So they don't often, you don't see them as much as you do regular dunes or ripples in the actual rock record. And I did find a pretty nice set of notes 
from somebody's sedimentology class. Their name is not on here, so <laughs> sorry. Can't give you credit for it. Um, 29 pages oh, wow. of bed form notes. <gasps> oh, my goodness. That was a sadistic professor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and I will uh, link that in the show notes, but it was very interesting. Oh, that's cool. Hmm. That is very interesting. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I just thought that we should work through flow regime because it's a really cool process, especially if you watch the flume experiment, to to watch these sediments do this very predictable, you know, sequence of formations as you increase the velocity of the system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. And if you want uh, tabletop, don't panic geocast flumes. <gasps> I do. <laughs> we could arrange for production of those. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> so, I, I don't know if you saw our, uh, our tweets and stuff this week, but we did release our groundwater kit this week. That's excellent. I was... Pretty excited about it. You can do like dye tracing and watch contaminants move. And it's pretty neat. I'm going to send it right now to our uh, our geohydrologist so he can say, I'm not spending my money on that. Give me a free one. But, you know, that's just him. He'll he'll come around. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, that's flow regime. But I think that when we're talking about water, you got to watch out when you're under that water with your goggles looking at the dunes because there might be something trying to get you. And it's this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> um, man, this <Da-na>. was... <laughs> <laughs> you got the wrong uh, reptile there when you're <laughs> going in for that. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, but crocodiles. But still, still. My, my Australian accent's not good, so... Oh, yeah. Don't try. Um, <laughs> this paper is amazing. Uh, a Chinese alligator in Heliox. Formant frequencies in a crocodilian by Reber et al. Yes. And so we <laughs> definitely have to say thank you to listener Teresa who sent this in. Yeah, this is... A couple months ago. Uh, yeah, hopefully she's still listening. Um, <laughs> I learned so many biology. I have one, two, three, four. Five, six, six tabs open to look up these biology words just in the abstract. <laughs> right. I mean, so, just in the title, right? Heliox, formant frequencies. Yeah. Journal of Experimental Biology, always a solid choice. Always. I was so excited when I saw that. <laughs> Though I did not know that the company that manages this journal is called the Company of Biologists. <laughs> so there you go. So creative. <laughs> Biologists are about as good as naming things as, as engineers are. So Exactly. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. This is super cool. And I've never heard a crocodile bellow before. <laughs> yeah. So formant frequencies are apparently these things that are proportional to the body size of the animal. And birds use them, and it's a way that you can't fake to say, I am this size. 
<laughs> so a female could listen to the call of several males and know automatically which one has the physically largest body and would therefore be the most suitable for mating. I love it. They call it honest signals of body size. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really great. I was hooked at the first sentence in this abstract, though. Like, this is an excellent hook of a sentence. <laughs> Crocodilians yes. are among the most vocal non-avian reptiles. What? Really? <laughs> I had no idea. They Me talk either. a lot. No idea. Um Obviously, you're going to want to visit the supplemental material, which I'm sad to say it's only one recording. I would have listened to 15 minutes of this crocodile barking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the rest of this is, well, John's going to take the lead because it's all about, you know, frequency analysis. And it turned <laughs> into a seismic paper and I was very sad. But... <laughs> Yeah, did you like that there are spectrograms in here? Yes, I was like, oh no, this is terrible. <laughs> um, the heliox part was really cool. And so what that is, is maybe exactly what you're imagining it to be. So when they do these, I guess when you're talking about these formant frequencies, these honest signals of body size, um, so it says there's little evidence for formants in anurins neurons which i also had to look up and that's like frogs and toads so they're obviously very vocal amphibians um and it said that they don't have these things right but one of the ways that you can study this is to make noises in your natural oxygenated environment and then to make noises in an 88 percent helium 12 percent oxygen environment and this is going to change, or not change, the frequency bands that are, like, produced by the sound sources based on what they're flowing in, right? Because helium is going to make sounds flow faster in it. So I thought this was a super elegant method, and I would never have thought of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, you know, okay, so we have vocal cords. We have... Okay, don't... Doctors, <laughs> real doctors, <laughs> this is going to be not the best explanation. <laughs> we have little meat flaps that vibrate <laughs> to make these sounds, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just trying to imagine my doctor saying meat flaps. <laughs> That's <Right>. really funny. <laughs> We're doctors of philosophy, everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, okay, <laughs> lots of jokes about that. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have these little pieces of us that vibrate to make vocal noises. Mm -hmm. We have different ones, so we sound different. We could depend upon something more like an, uh, an organ pipe. Okay, yeah. Something that resonates. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, okay, we're doing some resonation, but right, we're not, we're more of a vibrating reed, not a resonating hollow tube, where air is the material resonating. Right. Uh, and I had to think quite a while to convince myself of this when reading this paper. 
one of those is affected by the atmosphere and the other one isn't. Yes. I also had to stop and say, well, why, what, what is the point of this Heliox thing? Why would it change how it works? But it would change how it resonates because of the speed of the sound. And you got to think like a physicist on this one mm-hmm. and say, okay, let's think of the simplest resonator, a pendulum. Mm-hmm. Does the pendulum care? No. Mm-hmm. It's a function of its length and yep. gravity. Uh, whereas, yeah, a a tube that resonates with a gas, this, the speed of that wave going up and down the tube depends on the gas. The gas, right. Yep. So, yeah, their hypothesis was, well, and this has apparently been done in birds, uh, if we see a shift in the frequency content, then, yes, it is a format. And if we don't, it's not. Because it's vibrating meat. Mm-hmm. Delicious. Delicious. <laughs> so, uh, they did. So they saw a dominant frequency, which, I don't know, depending on exactly how they did their spectrogram. Eh, okay. <laughs> sure. So basically, it's exactly, it looks exactly like seismic, their picks. <laughs> but the, the format did shift significantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I thought was really cool is its first frequency, the, the fundamental, didn't shift as much as the second. And yes. they don't go into that much in the paper, but I'm wondering if that's because like you're changing from the meaty part that's producing it to the oh. tubey part. Uh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I think they did talk about like what hasn't been, th- that that needs to be analyzed. Yeah, so, in the but do you want to talk about the uh, the method of how they did this experiment? Oh, my God. <laughs> so, they, <laughs> figure three, the best. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, these are Chinese alligators, um, and they put this little girl <laughs> in a box, <laughs> and, you know, pumped in air, and if they had previously recorded, okay, they call them bellows, like elk or something, and they'd previously recorded her bellows, and they played it back to her, and because crocodilians are one of the most vocal non-avian reptiles, uh, they only had to play it back to her a couple times, and then she started bellowing back at the recording of herself. And so they recorded this um, in the ambient air, right? The title of figure three is Atmosphere Exchange During the Experimental Procedure Without Handling the Subject. (laughs) (laughs) And so they fill the tank after they've recorded all her little grocks. Um, Not little, they're loud. (laughs) They fill up the tank with water, push the ambient air out, and then fill it with this heliox and... You know, I, I when I first read that, this is so embarrassing. When I first read that, I was like, 88% helium and only 12% oxygen? That poor thing almost died. No, it's most of the atmosphere is nitrogen. 
Yeah, it's, like, it's like, really it's no different. Only twenty-one percent oxygen. I know. <laughs> and, and I mean, this all took place within five seconds, and I was like, "Oh God." <laughs> um, and so, I, obviously, this doesn't change how how they respirate. It's just it just changes how the sound moves, and so they then they fill it with the heliox. Once all the ambient air is pushed out, and as they fill it with that, they lower the water level. And then they play her angry bellows at her, and she goes to it again, and they record. With Without. the same handheld recorder that I've got. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, what do you need? That's It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I love this. And it's a really great, like, it's a very detailed drawing of that Chinese it alligator is. floating in the <laughs> in this box of water. <laughs> Some grad student had a lot of time with Illustrator and was Absolutely. really not wanting to do something else. Absolutely. It's very, very well done. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, obviously, the supplemental material is the recording of her yelling back at herself. Because in here, I also learned that female alligators were not mate with males who are smaller than them. Yes, I did not know that either. Mm-hmm. Why would we <laughs> know that? <laughs> yeah, so that's why. And so they can tell with these bellows that they make. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I did think, you know, it was interesting. They talked about, uh, well, one in the, what would you say? The They called ethical notes. <laughs> like, really, this is sort of like diving. In terms of what we're doing to the, mm-hmm. you know, this is something that we do to humans all the time. Yeah. Uh, the acoustic analysis, as you point out, is very similar to what we would do in seismic. Mm-hmm. We're changing the speed of what our signal's going through. Uh, but I also know several folks that have worked in bird calls, and this all sounds, yeah, about like they did, except applied to a crocodile. Yeah, exactly. And I love... The phrase non-avian reptile, right? Because birds are just dinosaurs. Like, well, and they do point out that, you yeah. know, common ancestors, that's probably why this works. Right. And crocodiles are some of the only extant, and birds are archosaurs. Like, yeah. Right. They're dinosaurs. So, no big surprise with the crocodiles, but it makes you look at your little canary a little bit different. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I have my daughter yelling dinosaurs at all the birds now because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> so... You think your cat's the one that wants to kill you. It's not. <laughs> it's the bird. It's, it's that a little chickadee. <laughs> and it beats the heart and the fomenter of a <laughs> Deinonychus. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> We don't advise you to try Heliox experiments with your pet, unless, of course, you're <laughs> trained in the operation of manometers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> but if you do want to report uh, your own series of experiments trying to determine the formants of different animals, Shannon, how can they send those results in? 
please send us your data. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. You can put your charts up in the Slack chat room if you wish. I'm sure we'd have lots of comments on them. And that's in the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you may do so. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And even though somebody wishes that someone would please, please displace our ambient air supply with (laughs) anything else. Until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.